This is the Freshman 15. I'm Jeremy Bear, and I'm the guy with the answers. Unladen swallows, airspeed velocity, the whole night. I'm Daniel Long, and there are three things in this world that you need. Respect for all kinds of life, a nice bowel movement on a regular basis, and a navy blazer. So Daniel, we haven't done this in a little while, but what do you say? A little bit of listener feedback. Let's do it. So we had some people drop us a line on, well, I don't know if you call it a line, but a comment. A couple of comments. A couple of comments on Facebook. And by the way, I want to say something about this before you even... Okay. Follow us on Facebook or like us on Facebook or whatever it is. As people who have done so have recently found out, the benefits are plentiful. For example, we recently had a piece of bonus content from our most recent Tim Burton episode that can only be available through Facebook. There's about 15 minutes worth of commentary specifically about Tim Burton's 1989 Batman film. A little something extra for those that wanted a little bit more. And if you want to know a little bit more about Jeremy... I know, I say we. You need to listen to this, (laughs) because Jeremy and Batman. They go together like Batman. Wassel and and Christmas. That's right, exactly. That's it. Anyway, I I apologize. We got a little feedback from Facebook. We do. So this is regarding our Tim Burton episode, right? Episode 18. I'm going to start off with a comment from John Patrick Nelson from the Hold Up podcast. Hold Up, we love him. Yep, and so here's what he says. If you can find it, the HBO special, The Pee Wee Herman Show, will give you an idea of what the character was like pre-Big Adventure. That is, still a man-child, but with lots more innuendo going on. It was weirdly popular in the 80s for adult acts to get kids shows. For example, Richard Pryor doing Pryor's Place. You know what? There's There was so much that, in fact, even the notes that I had made going into the Tim Burton episode about Pee Wee Herman, there's just so much to the history of that character and all that that, you know, I, I wish we had more time. That's a great point, and that's true. Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens had done television specials and all those kinds of things, and it's just, it's still such an oddity. Right. This, this sort of adult, but it's not kind of a thing. But And it's and I'm so grateful to have John Patrick Nelson chime in because when I, I think, I don't know if his name came up, at least in our pre-conversations about doing Tim Burton, mm. but I know that we're like, oh, if anybody's going to know, you know, about this, like we say that often, oh, it's going to be John Nelson. <laughs> Just because he, I feel like he, he reaches deep and pulls things out. Yeah, so it's yeah. great. Well, thank you, John, yes. for, your, for your comment. So here's, an, here's a comment from another John. John Schweitzer. So it's been a while since I've seen this, but I enjoyed looking up the scenes on YouTube as you mentioned them. I'll have to introduce it to the kids soon. I'm also feeling emboldened to give Charlie and the Chocolate Factory another chance. First time around, I utterly and completely failed to not compare it to Wilder's version, which will forever hold a special place in my heart. So John is a, uh, John Schweitzer is an old friend from uh, way back, and I can attest, knowing John personally, that he is a committed Willy Wonka fan. Really? Yeah, so this is this is a big deal for, for right. John Schweitzer to return to the Tim Burton version, which many saw on as a front to the Gene Wilder Willy Wonka. So Yeah, and I think that they're so tonally different. Like yeah. there's some similarities, but in ter- in terms of tone, they're so different that you that you kind of bring in the previous version thinking right that it's going to feel a certain way certainly you can kind of let go of the imagery and all that stuff yeah now tell me if i'm wrong on this because this is what i'm remembering tim burton's version was actually closer to the roald doll story yes than the old ones do i have that right that's my understanding yeah 
well, whatever the case. Uh, well, thank you, fellas, for the, the comments. We really appreciate it. By the way, if you're a listener and you have something you'd like to point out or ask or tell us that we're wrong or right or whatever, please drop us a line. We'd love to discuss it uh, here on the podcast. Absolutely. So, you ready to get started? Let's do it. Let us ride to Camelot. We're knights of the round table. We dance where we're able. We do routines and all the scenes to footwork in bed cable. We dine well here in Camelot. We eat ham and jam and smell off. We're tough and cable. Quite indefatigable. Between our quests, we seem to invest and impersonate our cable. It's a busy life in Camelot. I have to push the pram a lot. No, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Right. Daniel, I want to nip something in the bud right off the bat wow. real early. All okay. right. I, I'm kind of nervous. Well, I, I because I feel like there's there's going to be... People are probably already going to come into this with a certain attitude based on the marketing materials we've been putting out oh, yeah. about this episode. I want to acknowledge right off the bat, yes, we're talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Here we are. Daniel and I are fully aware that Terry Gilliam didn't direct this film on his own. I We know that. Terry Jones. Terry Jones and Terry Gilliam, they both did it. And Terry Jones is a fine director in his own right. We're here to talk today, though, specifically about the work of Terry Gilliam. So apologies to Terry Jones. Who knows? Maybe someday, it'll probably be a while, maybe someday we'll do a Terry Jones episode and we'll we'll have a whole other Monty Python and the Holy Grail episode that focuses more on him. But for right now, this Gilliam. Is, it's, the Gil, it's the Gilliam hour. I think in terms of film output, he has a larger oeuvre. Yeah, I think that's true. Right? And I think that... I'd say his films are more varied. Yeah, or it, it's certainly stylistically maybe yes. a little more specific also. we, You and I talked about Tim Burton and Terry Gilliam being sort of these guys. They started out as animators. They went on to make these ballsy bananas films yep. that we're still in some cases delighted by, in some cases disturbed by, but... The Tim Burton, Terry Gilliam, one-two punch kind of feel, felt appropriate. It felt for this so right. This is a brand new year. Here we go. Happy New Year, Happy everyone. New Year to you. 2018. Yes. Coming off a year where we've had some, some really interesting freshman films. Yes, we have. I mean, we've got the freshman films of Jordan Peele, Greta Gerwig. Taylor Sheridan. Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. These are all kind of big deal films. Really, really interesting stuff. So whatever. I just, I didn't want to let this New Year's episode go without acknowledging that it's been a heck of a year for freshman films. I think it's, a, yeah, and even for film all around. I've been really excited about this film year yeah there's still lots of films i need to see interesting year yeah exciting terry gilliam the the matter at hand monty python and the holy grail i gotta tell you something i think of all the episodes we've done this is the film (laughs) that i've seen the most really of all (laughs) you've seen this one so that i've seen this film so many times i can't even tell you i mean it's just over and over again yeah i mean just it's almost unconscionable to think that there are people that are listening to this that haven't seen monty python and the holy grail but daniel do you recall when you first took it in? So I recall watching bits and pieces of it many different times. And yeah. so I didn't watch the whole thing until I think I was probably in um, high school. I don't remember where it was on, but I remember it being on television sometimes. Yeah. Really not having the understanding of what's going on. Or why is there a person who's looking like they're on a horse 
but they're not on a horse. You know, it's just, sure. it's, yeah. um, so it wasn't until high school that I saw the, the thing the whole way through. And I'd say it wasn't even until college that I realized it was a Terry Gilliam film. Right. Having that, and that was when I was in film school because we were watching all like a lot of other Terry Gilliam films. Okay. It, there would be mention of Terry Gilliam doing Monty Python and the Holy Grail. I thought that's not true. Mm-hmm. I could just, like just having not gone into his um, library that way was so surprising to me. We've talked about it with other directors where you just, you don't always associate that freshman film with them, but then you go back to it and you're like, oh man, yeah, the paw prints are all over it. Oh, like, okay, I get it. So you've seen this a lot of times, but when was the a first time you saw it? And here's another one that I remember the very, very specific situation really? that I saw it. Yeah, for the first time. But again, it was something where I didn't see it in its entirety that first time. It was maybe kind of like you were saying, it was it was in bits. I was a freshman in high school and okay. I was in the school play, which was written and directed by a student who's, uh, whose name is Andre Montserrat. And actually he's a listener of the podcast. Oh, wow. Andre, way to go. Hello, Andre. He wrote this play for the students to be in and perform and he was a monty python maniac he loved it so he he littered references all through so i remember saying lines that were actually not even realizing that they were monty python lines in the part that i played really? in that play and he had the cast party at his house afterwards and he had monty python playing and i remember just sort of staring at it and going it's all making sense now yeah. all these references because i i knew that he was referencing this movie that I had never seen. And I had pictured this sort of screwy cartoon, ultra bright poppy sort of goofball thing. And then I saw the reality of what Monty Python and the Holy Grail is, which is a hilarious movie, but it's this strange sort of muddy, dirty, gritty, moody, smoky film that happens to have a lot of hilarious things in it. And it just, and that, that the way those two feelings kind of bumped up against each other was, I, I think my brain wasn't quite ready for it. I, I remember thinking, I really like this, mm-hmm. but, but it's also creeping me out a little bit. I didn't, I didn't know what to think, but I, but you know, 14 years old definitely knew that I needed to spend time with this film later. And in fact, I think, uh, I think like a month or so later, I, I I think I caught it on TV or something like that and really focused on it. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is one of those films you hear about before and you have that, right? Like you have those images, you yeah. have those lines that are quoted. There's so much of the movie that's in your consciousness because other people have talked about it and you, ha- you haven't yet seen it. I think Spinal Tap is one of those films too. Yeah, yeah. Where, right, where it's just const- people are constantly quoting it, referencing it. And then when you watch it, you're like, yeah, this is much different than I thought it would be. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of some of the great comedies throughout history is, you know, I people people are quicker to quote comedies than they are to quote dramas so this i have that's one of my questions i want to get into yeah so what what about that why is it that comedies kind of grab hold of our brains and we want to continually repeat them yeah i don't know it's it's interesting i think it's because and this is just my off-the-cuff pondering but I, i i wonder if it's because when we can successfully quote a comedy that we've seen, it makes us funny. Oh, yeah. You True. know, we, we, we've all known that guy in the office that incessantly quotes Caddyshack or Fletch 
or has a Borat impression no, or totally. Anchorman's one of those Anchorman yeah. exactly you know and just and I think to that point I think memes have almost like taken oh. the place of yeah of just comedy quoting in uh, contemporary internet life but it's true though there's just this thing and because it, it's a shared experience like I can say I fart in your general direction yes. And everyone knows what I mean. Mm-hmm. I get funny cred for saying that in the right group of people. And in the right time, right? At the right time. Yeah. Everyone knows Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Honestly, one of the most quotable movies of all time. Oh, absolutely. It's just, it's just the way it is. So we've kind of entered into the discussion, but we haven't even given a premise. You're right. So what, 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 what is Monty Python and the Holy Grail about? Well, I was going to ask you to do it. You're the one oh, really? who's seen it so many times. <laughs> So um, I, I think it's it's almost hard to premise without a slight bit of background. Monty Python, of course, and I feel almost like this is an insult to be saying this because you probably know this, but Monty Python, British television comedy troupe, sketch comedy. This was the first feature film that this comedy troupe made. John Cleese, mm-hmm. Eric Idle, Michael Palin, Terry Jones. Of course, Terry Gilliam was in that troupe, but he was he wasn't as as in the forefront in terms of acting as the other guys were. And he's the, he's the only American in that. Troupe? The only American in the group was Terry Gilliam, and he kind of tended to fade into the background. But what Terry Gilliam, of course, did was he was the animator, right, for all the uh, bumpers and all the little animated comedic moments for. The show, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Anyhow, they decided to make their first film about King Arthur's quest for the Holy Grail and the Knights of the Round Table that are that are going to try and find the Holy Grail. Essentially, though, the whole film is a series of sketch vignettes. Yes. The common thread through them is it's King Arthur and he's gathering his knights and they're all in search of the Holy Grail. But past that very ultra loose, you know, structure. There's just moments. It's just moments. It's just scene to scene. Like, you know, okay, here's a funny vignette followed by another funny yep. vignette followed by another. That's kind of what you're in for. Not unlike the films that they would do later, like Meaning of Life and Life of Brian. It's probably the most cohesive of the films yeah, that they did. <laughs> I, I agree. But, you know, of course, Graham Chapman has the uh, daunting task of playing the straight man throughout the whole film. And he plays King Arthur, does a phenomenal does job. does a great job. Yeah. And when you find out later all the, are, all the horrible things that Graham Chapman was, was going through at the time, it makes it even more amazing. Yeah. He was battling alcoholism. He was the guy who fell on the sword. Oh, and yeah. said, I'm going to be the straight man amidst all these goofball characters. And uh, and you absolutely have to have that character in order for the movie to work. And I think, honestly, Graham Chapman is one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that the movie is so funny. Oh, I think so, too, because every, every person has to act in reference to him. Right. I am constantly expecting him to become like the other, like another character, yeah. right? To kind right. of become a farce in a sense. Right. He never is. I mean, he's always King Arthur, you know, King of the Brits. I mean, yeah. the whole time. And he do, it's not that he never has anything funny to say. No, or do, it's not that. But yeah, but he just, he plays it so straight. A- acting opposite John Cleese and maintaining the sort of straight man composure is, that's an amazing feat in and of itself. It really is. You know, I watched it a couple of times again, even in preparation oh, yeah. for this. I wondered, would, would it be necessary? I've seen this movie so many times. In preparing for something like a discussion like we're having, you do watch it differently. Oh, you do. Honestly, I was just, I rewound it and I watched it probably no less than five times over the course of the last week and a half. 
the witch scene. It's an amazing scene. Honestly, I think it is in some ways, and maybe it's just because I've just got a, got slightly obsessed with it recently. I think it's the perfect comedy scene. And I think it's the perfect length yeah. of a scene. And the way that it uses repetition, right, between Bedivere and the other characters in order to create the payoff. It's yeah. just so incredible. I'm not a witch. I'm not a witch. But you are dressed as one. They dressed me up like this. <laughs> and this isn't my nose. It's a false one. Well... Well, we did do the nose. The nose? And the hat. But she's a witch! Did you dress her up like this? No! 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 Yes! 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 Yes. A bit! A bit! A bit! bit. She has got a wart! (laughs) What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt! A newt? I got better. One of the things that probably stood out to me the most in my recent viewing of Monty Python, I was endlessly impressed with Michael Palin. Mm. Later on, I heard Terry Gilliam actually in an interview talk about how when he did his very first solo film, which was Jabberwocky, and he cast Michael Palin in the lead role, Mm -hmm. and he said it was basically acknowledged among all the Pythons that Palin was the best actor of everyone. Everyone had their really specific thing. But in terms of just pure acting ability, Michael Palin was the guy. And I don't think I ever really saw that because I was just, I've always been so sucked in by the charisma of like John Cleese of and course. the screwiness of Eric Idle and, you know, and all of them had their own thing. And I was like, yeah, and Michael Palin and he's good too. But just when you really just watch his performance, first of all, he plays more parts than anyone, any of the other cast members and he's hidden in some part i mean you you have to look for him you have to really really pay attention to realize that's him because he's doing such a great character you know in that moment but i love watching michael palin even just during like the burn the witch scene which he's just he's just a guy in the crowd watch his face watch just the throwaway lines that he says whatever but just like and, and i and i'm trying not to do it because there's nothing more boring than dissecting a comedy scene, but I found myself with the burn the witch scene, just just doing it. Like, why is this scene so good? Why is this so funny? Every single moment of this is just like, I, you almost have to pause it. It's so funny. So you can just let yourself laugh at it. And, and by the way, this is also interesting. It's one of the only scenes in the film where the characters are what's called corpsing or breaking character. Oh, okay. But they're breaking character in such a way. And if you watch closely, you can see they're doing it in such a way that actually adds to the scene rather than takes away from it. And if you don't know what you're what to look for, you probably won't even catch it. Oh, wait, so describe this a little bit more. So corpsing. Corpsing. So like Saturday Night Live, for example, when they break because something is too funny right. and they just can't continue with it. Jimmy Fallon was watching. Jimmy Fallon. Yeah. yeah just, just terrible with it. But there's something about it that audiences like. Yeah. For example, in the Burn the Witch scene, where there's a moment when Bedivere is trying to lead them down this path to figure out scientifically how to, how to discover who a witch is. Right. A, a witch can be burned, and a, a, a wood can also be burned. <laughs> so she must therefore weigh the same as wood, <laughs> which weighs the same as a duck because they both float. float. You know, and it just so it goes good. on this, this insanity. But there's a moment in there where he's trying to get the crowd to acknowledge something about that. And John Cleese gives like this incredibly long pause where he's trying to think of the answer. Tell me, 
what do you do with witches? <laughs> and what do you burn apart from witches? More witches! Wood! So, why do witches burn? If you look at Eric Idle and Michael Palin, they're losing it. Are they really? The whole time. Yeah. See, I need to go back and watch this. Yeah. And so you see like Michael Palin, he's bowing his head, but he's doing it in such a way that he just, he looks like this idiot townie. Eric Idle (laughs) is holding like this scythe. Right. And in order to stop himself from laughing, he bites it. Like he really, he puts it in his mouth and he bites it like he's gnawing on it. What he's trying That's to do so is not good. openly laugh. Oh, man. But what what comes across is these townies that are just anxious to burn the witch are they? They just look like That's what I got insane numbskulls. Yes, but it's really just them trying not to corpse. But it just it adds so much to the scene, and you know, well, Graham Chapman's entrance where you know he declares she would weigh the same as a duck. It's, I, <laughs> it's so good. It's great. It's it, the the scene works as just a, on on a silliness level. If you want it to, it can work on this political commentary oh, level. Course. In the whole movie, by the way, uh, I think you could say that about it's silly, but yet it's timely and yet timeless, and yet it comments on kind of important issues yeah. and it's also meta it comments on itself it comments on its own audience and my impression is i don't think a lot of movies were operating on that level no, at that time so. it just it seems like such a unique piece and i think that seems really unique to gilliam i mean yeah. we can we can talk about how many times in his films it does all of those things yeah right that is one of the things that is a signature gilliam move is to have all of these elements working together um, to tell really like these amazing stories that are both fantastical yet commentaries and also humane. I mean, he does all of these things and it it does begin here and Monty Python, the Holy Grail. It's funny and you, you have all of, you know, like the zaniness kind of happening, but the whole time, for me, I'm rooting for them. Sure. Right? Like, I want them to to find... <laughs> the grail. The grail. <laughs> I want them to find it. Yeah. Yeah. I And I think that's the thing. So, so by the way, just a little bit of, um, for reference, as we mentioned at the front, Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones directed it. The, the going comment that I've heard was Terry Gilliam was obsessed with how it looked and Terry Jones was obsessed with it being funny. Oh, okay. Obviously, Terry Gilliam knows what's funny, and Terry Jones, with later things that he directed, clearly he cares about how things look, so I don't think it's quite that stark a contrast. But I think in general, though, you had already this really kind of obsessive attention to compositional detail that that Gilliam really, really wanted to get across. He just had, coming from an animation background, uh, he thought in terms of visual composition, you know, you don't really have a choice. You have to. And there's moments in Holy Grail where you can see that, wow, he does that shot here and here and here and here and here throughout the rest of his, uh, throughout the rest of his body of work. I think the moment that, that stuck out to me the most was... Galahad bursting into the castle anthrax yeah. and he falls on the floor 
and you hear a voice from off screen and he looks up and you see this, you know, bevy of teenage girls that are just all waiting to seduce Galahad. Hello. Hello. Welcome, gentle Sir Knight. Welcome to the Castle Anthrax. The Castle Anthrax? Yes. It's not a very good name, is it? Oh, but we are nice, and we will attend to your every, every need. You are the keepers of the Holy Grail? The what? The camera's basically on the floor. It feels, if it's not, at least it feels almost bendy and wide-angly. The, the lead girl, she's, she's towering over everything, and the rest are sort of sprinkled on behind her. But again, low, low angle, probably not the angle that you would typically think of mm-hmm. shooting the introduction of the scene beauty, you know? Yeah. But if you look at that angle, Terry Gilliam does that throughout the rest of, uh, throughout the rest of his career. I mean, it's... And it's in every film. Every film. He likes to put that camera down on the ground. He likes looking up people's noses. He likes that, that just the, the, the compositional poetry of the edges of the frame tend to kind of bend around mm-hmm. your view a little bit. He just likes those kinds of lenses. Yeah. I, it's really, really interesting because in some ways, it almost feels like it could potentially be the anti-comedy, mm. but he turns it into comedy. He like he kind of wrenches comedy out of that, out of those kinds of camera angles. And I don't know that there's, I mean, I can't say that there's no other director that does that. Clearly there are, but no one does it quite like he does it. No, he doesn't. And it actually reminds me of our conversation in episode when we talk about Danny Boyle. It seems like he's going into every film wondering, like, where is a unique spot that I can place the camera? What's yeah. a different angle I can go for? I think Terry Gilliam, he has some pr- his consistent in terms of how he shoots things. But I always feel like his angles, his compositions are surprising. Like even if, oh, once it happens, it's like, oh yeah, that's a that's a Gilliam shot. But it, it doesn't when it comes and I for me, when I notice it most, and it, it's in Monty Python, but it's certainly in other films, it's his wanting to focus on like the face. It's like the right. this wide angle face shot. Yeah. Right? From different it can be up high, whether it's a character like yelling, looking into the camera, it can be from below and wanting to this character to tower over, but he's so interested in yeah. in almost making the person or the face or the features larger than life. Right. And I think that connects to something he does in his films. Yeah. Which is that whole right, everything seems a little bit bigger, larger. It's on a different plane than than reality. Even if it's taking place in reality. Yeah. It still feels like the way that he shoots it, you're like wondering if, um, is this going to turn into a sci-fi film? You know, it could right. at any moment. I feel like with Gilliam, you're always on your toes. Like what yeah. kind of movie am I watching here? Yeah. I don't think I can think of a director who is better at making you feel completely conflicting feelings at the same time. Yeah, He has a way of doing it where every film that he's done in some way or another is actually really funny, but He doesn't just let you off the hook by just letting you laugh and that's it. No. He always wants that knife in between your ribs a little bit. Like, like, uh, it's funny, but I want want to hurt you with this (laughs) a little bit. You know, there's going to be some darkness here and there's going to be a little bit. Even in Monty Python, there's a couple of moments where you're just like, 
Oh, that's funny, but you know, there's there's a little bit of biting social commentary oh, in there, right. or there's some sort of gore, even or you know, I mean, holy cow, Monty Python is <laughs> in so the Holy Grail is kind of a gory movie. Yeah, I know, and I was thinking of the opening scene. Well, no, no, and I was thinking of the scene when the Jabberwocky in his film Jabberwocky is first introduced. Right? right, you don't actually know what's happening. You know, this character is being taken up, and you just see this crazy angle face, and you see all this yelling, right. and then you see him thrown down, and then he's skinned alive. Yeah, and you're like, that's kind of gross. Yeah, and. and funny i think because i wasn't expecting that but there's so many yeah he does that often yeah yeah there is that i mean i don't know even know how to put the terry gilliam aesthetic into words but it's kind of just like a (laughs) yeah that's it that was it (laughs) that was it that was for you everyone by the way that's that's terry gilliam for you yeah disturbed but yet it's funny but i don't uh i don't really want i don't i don't know how much how invested am i going to allow myself to be in this film many films of terry gilliam i felt that sort of hesitance and then some of his films i'm like i don't know if i can be all right with this i really don't well even his most recent zero theorem yeah i'll be straight with you man i didn't finish the film you didn't finish it i didn't finish it i i wanted to i was in a, a i guess a mental place when i watched it where i was like I'm going to go back to this someday. Right now, this is, I, I don't I don't have the headspace for it. And I think that that's an interesting comment because I did find that film exhausting. Yeah. If you could take a methamphetamine yeah. and put it into a film, right. <laughs> that's what it would be. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. You, you want a strand that you can hold on to, but Zero Theorem, yeah, that was a tough one. Most cringeworthy movies got to be Tideland. I don't know if you ever saw Tideland. I did. Holy cow, dude. Yeah. You got, you kind of have to warn people almost about Tideland. I saw, and I don't know where this is, but I, I locate, because I was uh, in my research looking at Terry Gilliam films, and I came across this random, what I would say is like a warning yeah. from Terry Gilliam himself about Tideland. So I don't know if it's on a DVD somewhere, mm. but he it's black and white, and it's just, it's the camera's on him, and he basically wants to tell you how to watch it. Mm-hmm. And I found his introduction to it really sweet. And uh, since then, I'm like, oh, I want to rewatch this. Many of you are not going to like this film. Many of you, luckily, are going to love it. And then there are many of you who aren't going to know what to think when the film finishes. I should explain. This film is seen through the eyes of a child. If it's shocking, it's because it's innocent. I was 64 years old when I made this film. I think I finally discovered the child within me. It turned out to be a little girl. I remember watching it, not knowing what to do with it, and then haven't seen it since. Then I watched this and I'm like, huh, I wonder. It's so hard to watch, <laughs> frankly. I mean, it's just, for those who haven't seen it, I, 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 I don't mean to be too opaque about it, but it's just, you know, if you do watch Tideland, you're going to see things like um, exploration of issues like the sexual relationship between adults and minors, you're going to see a very irreverent treatment of death. and So irreverent. Yeah, there's a lot of disturbing things there. And, you know, not a, it's not a complicated movie. No. But, um, but it just, it, it, will, it will wake you up <laughs> in the night after you see it. It's a good springboard to one thing that I wanted to talk about with Terry Gilliam, which is, you know, we talked about Kubrick, the dangerous director, I think if I had to put a moniker 
on Terry Gilliam, it would be the the fearless. Oh, director. absolutely. I think that's a good word. And resilient. Resilient, fearless. I mean, almost in an asshole way. Like he's so fearless that he doesn't even fear your reaction as an audience. Like he care less. No. In fact, I, I, you get the sense that he kind of is energized by the idea that you're disturbed or you don't know what to do with it or you know, you're annoyed even. Like, I think I think he kind of wants you to get a little annoyed with him when when he, he shows a movie to you. Probably not what he was going for in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Right. But <laughs> it's interesting. Whenever you see interviews with Terry Gilliam, you, you see a man who's just kind of giddy. Yeah. He's just, he's he's giggling all the time. If you, if you ever want to see a grown man giggle, watch a Terry Gilliam interview. He just, he, he has this sort of giggly laugh and he reserves it for when he's talking about either pissing people off oh, or yeah. throwing people off kilter or something like that, where he's just like, I want, I want to show you something that you're not going to want to do with. And he loves that. That's his fist in the air moment sure. is when he shows you something that you don't quite know what to do no, with. No, it's called the Gilliam giggle. <laughs> There's a name for it. Is it really? No. <laughs> I would have believed but it. But there should be. <laughs> No, but I think you're right. And he I feel like he does get off on on even studios not wanting to finance his films. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories where he's I can't remember what um late night show, mm-hmm. but he wasn't getting money and so he went out to and into the line of this late night show and introduced himself and wore a sign I think that said trying to make film, please help or something. Right. But there's something about that that he likes. Yeah. Well, I mean, of course, the most famous story of his battles with studios and producers, of course, has to be uh, during the completion of the film Brazil. Mm-hmm. The studios, very specifically, Sid Sheinberg made a decision that even though the film was, was financed, it was completed, Terry Gilliam, he looked at it as his opus, and Sid Sheinberg said, you know what, I don't think we're going to release it. They wanted to just sit on the movie. They were so worried about the reaction. So Terry Gilliam went on a whole campaign. And this is just something that you don't do if you want to have any kind of career right. in Hollywood. But he took out a full page ad in at least one major newspaper that was essentially this huge minimalist ad with a little bit of text in the dead center that said, Dear Sid Scheinberg, why won't you release my film oh my Brazil? Oh goodness, that's amazing. Terry Gilliam. Needless to say, that got the attention of all the media. And then, of course, you know, that just, it led to these, you know... Uh, secret showings, right? Secret showings. Uh, I, I don't know, was it at USC yes. or something like that, where there was like a... He was teaching a class. Teaching and then a class. Students are trying to pound down the door of like the dean or the someone who, who, was, who, who had an issue with the film being shown and... It was the definition of this grassroots anarchy movement to get this film shown. I think it's honestly part of the reason that I love Brazil so much is knowing the story behind the That's story. That's amazing. It's just an incredible piece of work. Yeah, and if you think about his other films, I mean, the guy has had so many things happen to him in his movies. Yeah. What he's still trying to make the Don Quixote film, right? Which, Which is, supposedly is is there. completely shot and okay. it's coming out this later this if year. If you guys have not seen the documentary called Lost in La Mancha. Lost in La Mancha. It is a wonderful documentary about Terry Gilliam's failed attempt at making a Don Quixote film with Johnny Depp, right? Right. And Gene 
Rochefort. The documentary is, I think, wonderful for multiple reasons. One, I think it gives you respect for just the fact that movies get made at all. But it will make you furious. And furious and furious. Secondly, it just highlights the absolute pain that Terry Gilliam goes through. Yeah. Trying to get this film made, and then you have jets coming overhead. You have Rochefort falling and, and I think having almost breaking his back. I mean, right. this storms is... Storms coming in and just destroying their equipment. Their whole set, right? Yeah. yeah. No, we were setting up for that shot. Yes? We, we, there's a plan. There's a very clear plan what we're doing. And it, you know, and we're the victims of that. And if we keep running for each thing, we, all we do is run in circles. I mean, this is... I don't know what else to do. And, and this is just one film. I've heard that he's... What is it? The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus? Heath Ledger dies in the middle of it. Right. And then... On the set, Terry Gilliam also gets backed into by a bus. Right. I mean, and then not to mention all the other stories we've already highlighted about yeah. the studio not financing. I mean, here's a director who's resilient. Well, it, but he is also, I mean, you know, in, a, in addition to being having this reputation where he's this fearless guy who's, you know, can be kind of a pill also, he also is, has this reputation of having just this horrible luck. He's the ultimate bad luck director. The number of projects, and this Don Quixote is is only one of them that he that have almost gotten off the ground. I mean, the list goes on and on. Originally, and this is a couple of decades ago, probably at this point, you know the the movie The Watchmen that oh, Watchmen right. that Zack Snyder. This was originally Terry Gilliam's movie. <laughs> Which could you imagine what that would be like? Yeah, just ridiculous. But you know that just it went through so many problems, and you know, and, and finally Terry Gilliam declared the film unfilmable. If you've seen Zack Snyder's Watchmen, you may agree with Terry Gilliam. <laughs> a beloved book, uh, one of my favorite books of all time. It's called Good Omens. It's by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Oh, okay. Nearly into production on that movie, and a thousand things went wrong at the very last moment. Um, I even read excerpts of the screenplay. This was going to be such a phenomenal movie. Really? Just absolutely hilarious and fantastic and beautiful and perfect for Terry Gilliam's sensibilities, and he just couldn't make it happen. I remember writing letters. Really, you did? Yeah, I, I wrote letters about good omens to people. Wow. And trying to say, I, I want to see this movie. What can we do to make this movie? I wanted to see Terry Gilliam's take on that book, but the stars just weren't aligned. Now, probably most directors have, uh, of, of any kind of success, have some stories like that, right. and that's inevitable. But there's something about Terry Gilliam where he just, he goes the distance in so many different cases uh, right at the edge of success, he gets cut off at the knees. Um, I heard a story that I can't remember if it was after Brazil or what film. River Phoenix was like, I want to work with Terry Gilliam. Yeah. And so had his agent set up a meeting, was going to meet with him. The night before he's going to meet with him is the night he died. Oh. Can you believe that? That's so crazy. Unbelievable. I know. Only to Terry Gilliam. I know. I mean, what can you say? Maybe a fairly famous story also. He was supposed to be the director of the first Harry Potter. Yes, that was, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, really, really interesting. J.K. Rowling loved him. She had chosen him as the director of the first, uh, the Sorcerer's Stone, or in England, the Philosopher's Stone. The studio said, no, this is maybe the most commercially viable property we've ever gotten our hands right. on. Right. Bad luck Terry Gilliam is not going to be our guy, so they handed it to... Chris Columbus. Chris Columbus, who... <laughs> You know what? And it's a fine little movie. It's fine. Not according to Gilliam. 
you read what he says about that, it's like, oh, okay, you have some opinions yeah. that are atrocious or something. Yeah. I can't remember what he and said. And I think he also like sour graped on it a little bit. Like, you know what? I, I wouldn't want to do it anyway. Yeah, so, right. You know, screw him. I mean, you know, I, there's, a, there's a theory. The universe gives you the kinds of things that you attract, I guess. And, and I've, I, I, in a strange sort of way, I've thought about that in terms of the career of Terry Gilliam for some reason. Right. Um, because I thought, is there a reason that calamity seems to follow Terry Gilliam wherever he goes, like with so many of these movies. And and don't get me wrong, I like so many of his movies and other movies I just don't know what to do with. But he's he's such a caustic personality. In an interview, he just he came clean about the fact that he thinks Schindler's List is a bad movie. Schindler's List had to, we had to save those few people. Ah, happy ending. A man can do what a man can do and, and stop you know, death for a few people. But that's not what the Holocaust is about. It was about complete failure of civilization to allow six million people to die. I know which side I'd rather be on. I'd like to have a nice house like Spielberg, but I know which side I'd rather be on. <laughs> and it's just, but what's so amazing is no one other than Terry Gilliam is going to make a statement like that. And he just tosses it off like, well, yeah, you know, uh, you don't have to agree with me, but whatever. But he just, he has this confrontational spirit. He insists on confronting everyone. In fact, that was something that, um, that Terry Jones, back to Monty Python, I think he's, this is something Terry Jones said in an interview, that Terry Gilliam is only happy when he's fighting with someone. Really? Like, so Terry Jones said that? Yeah. And of course, Gilliam responded to that later and said, no, that's, that's idiotic. Well, and, yeah. You know, but that was, that was kind of a character of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, at least the, the making of it, constant tension on yes, the set. That's good. Yeah. Which, which somehow led to some of the funniest material and you can see it. I don't know if you've ever seen any outtakes from Holy Grail. No, I haven't. It was a stressful shoot. These That's guys, crazy. Yeah, these guys kind of didn't want to be there. When, when reporters have talked to a lot of the members of Monty Python, some of them aren't really that into talking about Holy Grail because of how bad a time they had. Oh my goodness. There's a moment, there is an outtake where you can just see a very stressed Terry Jones is a scene where he's acting with John Cleese and... John Cleese just barely kind of starts to flub a little bit and, and kind of scramble for what the line is rather than what probably most directors would do would just be like, okay, let's just, let's just let John Cleese get through it and maybe he'll find something and maybe it'll inform the next take or something mm-hmm. like that. Just, it was barely just a, a half second into John Cleese starting to kind of have trouble with a line Terry Jones, who's in costume and acting with John Cleese, just turns to the camera and says, cut, we're doing this again. And just you can just tell there's just the sharpness Whoa. to like, we're not screwing around with this. Just, you know, this is, this is a bad take. Just move on. And there's other outtakes where he's just like, Terry, stop looking at me like that when I'm, when I'm trying to do. You don't know which Terry he's talking to because he's off camera. It's crazy. I'll blow my nose on you. No, don't, Terry. I'm sorry. It's very off-putting. I know you're trying to direct me. And I Okay. But somehow, and I have to think that Terry Gilliam, just by virtue of who he is, was a part of this tension. It brought out this right. very, very interesting vibe in the performance. I, I don't know. I think that same kind of tension maybe is present through all the rest of his films. I can't be sure, but that's I, I can see that happening. And you, I mean, I can see that actually in the characters, right? The, most of the main characters of his films exude that sense of anxiety, and stress. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of 
um, well, Brazil, 12 Monkeys, The Fisher King. Sure. Uh, you have these strong male characters who are in constant struggle. Yeah. That is basically the nature of the stories that he tells, at least in I mean, a lot of the stories he tells. Something I did want to bring up about Terry Gilliam, he has such a interest in what I would call fakery, which is different than special effects. Uh-huh. Because if you look at, even in his more recent films, when I say recent, you know, like Brothers Grimm or something like that, the special effects, I guess, just from a analytical standpoint, they're not really good. No. You know? And I think that goes all the way back to Holy Grail. Like the arms and the, the limbs getting cut off. Right. Yeah. But I think there's a little bit more going on where I think that's just kind of Terry Gilliam's aesthetic. He likes to remind you that none of this crap is real. Right. And that there is a giggling, crazy person yeah. behind the camera kind of making it all happen. I mean, you know, even just the fact that in, you know, in Monty Python, you know, the God puppet with the movable mouth chin and all that, or, or the or the feet that come down and squish things. Yes. And, all that kind of stuff and the butt trumpets and it's it's all sort of in this fantastical Terry Gilliam handmade low budget kind of thing that I don't even want to say you can forgive it. I think it's I think it's almost necessary to his aesthetic. So I don't know, just something that I thought was interesting. Absolutely. I mean it's almost like the real is the thing that interrupts yeah. you know, the fantasy that goes back to the Holy Grail. I mean, you have yeah. the, or you have these, this whole police thing that's going on. You sure. have this, what you're not really sure that the real <laughs> is kind of coming into the, what is this thing that's fake or is it the vice versa? But I can see that in a lot of his films. I think of the moment, which was kind of mimicked in 12 monkeys later, but that at the shot from um, Brazil, where, you know, we're going down this sort of endless passage, this road of billboards and cities and all this kind of stuff. And then looming up is this, you know, what you don't know is like a homeless guy or something like that with a big, right. taking a big swig. And you're like, whoa, whoa, is there like a giant on the horizon now? You know, so, and the same thing happens later on in 12 Monkeys with the, uh, with, with the, the celebratory moment with the uh the people that yeah. are welcoming bruce willis back from this trip and they've all got their kind of party hats on and things and it's all it's shot in this way that it's like it's so not real and not legit and he purposefully pulls you out of the realism of that moment yeah we talk about the cohen brothers who are you're always in it yes and you never leave you're always in the moment they never take you out of it whereas terry gilliam is actively taking you out of his own movie yeah and saying that's good though you should remember that you're sitting in a seat and watching something fake right there was a wide shot and one shot of 12 monkeys which uh if you're unfamiliar with the film the whole thing not the whole thing but a lot of it takes place in this post-apocalyptic underground future yeah yeah but there's a moment where there is this very Gilliam-esque scene, just pipes and screens and machinery and all that. And, and you see uh, Bruce Willis uh, in a wide shot, but way off in the corner, so big that, you know, if you didn't have an HD television, you probably would never be able to see it. There's a hamster and a hamster wheel. But Terry Gilliam insisted on that take being done over and over and over and over until someone could get that hamster to run at the right moment. And it's, it's, it's such a nothing part of the composition. Like that's the kind of stuff that he's obsessed with. Well, I think that moment that you're describing really does reveal he has a vision, right? Right. He knows in that scene in particular, what is supposed to happen in that scene. And he, it seems like 
he has an inability to imagine it a different way. Right. And I think that his films are presented in that way. So, like he said already, he doesn't care if your imagination doesn't line up with his. All he cares about is actually filming what he sees. And, yeah. and that's what he wants to present to you. Totally fine if you don't want to see the world that way. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate about Terry Gilliam as an artist most of the time is that he presents... I think an angle or a story or um, something that melds the fantastical with the um, with reality that helps me see things in a, I mean in a new way. And most of the time, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think in a in an odd sort of way, I see a Terry Gilliam film, even if I don't like it or if I don't know what to do with it. It kind of helps me inform my own life philosophy. Mm. Maybe that's a little overwrought, but it's still the truth. I, I, I'll watch a Terry Gilliam film, and a lot of times what's equally interesting is to discover the story behind a Terry Gilliam film. What went into that? What was the thought process? And you realize that living fearlessly, particularly as an artist, is a thing you can actually do. Right. And I think that that's something that's immensely valuable, and maybe that's Terry Gilliam's greatest gift to film, is saying, you know what, there is a way to not compromise. I'm yeah. not going to say it's not going gonna, it's, it's gonna to work out for you every time. But if you choose to do that... It's possible. It's possible. You can do that. And I think you see it right at the beginning in, in The Holy Grail because, I mean, we talk all the time about if it's your freshman film, you're, you're making a comment on your skills, on your um, vision, and so it's got to be good. Right. You have to swing for the fence. With something like... Monty Python, The Holy Grail, I think it could be easy to say, oh, this is just, yes, like we've said a series of vignettes and things like that. But it's a singular vision. Sure. I wouldn't be surprised if this was something that people watched and like, oh, I have not seen this before. This blending of mythology and comedy and beauty in terms of composition. And so I think we see that, that uncompromising nature of Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Right from the beginning that he follows all the way through. Yeah, and I think I think Holy Grail there is a quality to it where I mean it, it's actually pretty interestingly shot it particularly is. given the fact that it was a really low budget picture but there is this kind of you know what we're just figuring shit out as we go yeah. sort of quality to it and you feel that. And even when you see like um archival interviews with Terry Gilliam from that he thinks the whole thing is just hilarious. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of his all of his castmates and everyone in Python, you can just tell they're 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 cold and they're covered in mud and shit and, and all that. And in fact, even Eric Idle's line, you know, well, he hasn't got shit all over him in that scene. <laughs> that's that was supposedly that was an ad libbed line. Oh, really? But you can almost take it on a meta level sure. where he's just like, you know, that's what this whole shoot is. It's just grossness all over everything. Who's that then? I don't know. Must be a king. Why? He hasn't got shit all over him. But Terry Gilliam kind of just thought the whole thing was sort of funny. Yeah. You know, I mean, he just, he liked the fact that he was creating something out of this weird sort of misery and he didn't know how to do it. And he was, he, he would even joke with reporters about the fact that, yeah, we don't know what the hell we're doing. I mean, we're just figuring this thing out as we go. I mean, they'd shot a lot, so many different Monty Python flying circus shorts and all that. So it's not like they were going in with no experience whatsoever, but he had never done a feature film. And you could tell that he actually liked the fact that he'd mm -hmm. never done a feature film. In fact, he even mentioned later in interviews, I think this might've been more about Jabberwocky than Holy Grail. 
But he said, you know, there's this freedom you have when you're young and dumb. Hmm. And you find yourself accomplishing things that you're not going to be able to accomplish later because you know too much. Yeah. I think that spirit definitely went into the Holy Grail. Every one of those vignettes is something that, to a certain degree, you can just see Monty, the whole Monty Python crew just kind of shrugging. Fuck it. Let's yeah. try it. And so I guess one of my questions for you as an artist, then, thinking about what you've said about Gilliam being fearless and the possibility of, of being uncompromising, my question is, is that fearlessness as an artist, that willingness to be uncompromising, is it something you have to constantly, like, you're telling yourself, okay, I need to be this way? Is it a personality thing that you feel like you have? It is, a, is it a muscle you work out? I mean, that's what I'm curious about that. Like, is this something that Terry Gilliam has had to tell himself right. constantly all the way through his career? Um, is that something you tell yourself as an artist? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, nature and nurture. Yeah. I think it's a question that we all have to answer for ourselves, um, whether or not you're an artist. But I think I think the answer is different for me personally than it would be for Terry Gilliam. There's something about Terry Gilliam, like I don't know that he knows how to be any other way. Mm. I think that he has a certain kind of personality. He's just not going to even bother making a movie if he can't make it in that right. way. So, you know, what what would be the point? For me and my own work, compromise is just a part of my life. You know, it's just, it's... So you have to, it's something that you know you're going to have to do. Yeah, and there are times that you surface, you know, you come up for air a little bit in the middle of like a project or something. And you're like, I'm compromising this and I shouldn't be. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really need to go back to this. And that's the moment that I think for a lot of us, it has to be a little bit more nurture than nature. I mean... It has to be in your nature to a certain degree or else you're just not going to go anywhere. It's right. just, you know, it's, it's like, what's the point? You're certainly not going to be an artist of any kind of influence or note if you are a go with the flow kind of a guy or lady. But I don't know. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I think it is possible to train yourself and allow influences into your life that say, I know what I want this to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of it is knowing what you want something to be is a huge part because a lot of people don't always necessarily go in with that. Right. They know kind of the things they like and they know what they're sort of after, but people come to them with different options or different ways to do things. And it's hard to know which of those things is like, oh yeah, this was helpful criticism. I, you know, this, maybe this would actually make this better or no, you're diluting what my vision is. Yeah. And my vision is in its purest form is better than what you're offering me. When you do that second thing, you're going to be in a confrontational space. Mm. And if you're not a confrontational person, then that's going to be hard. I tell my wife sometimes, and sometimes people I work with, I wish I weren't personally so confrontational, but I have to acknowledge to a certain degree that the fact that I am maybe a little quicker to be confrontational than maybe other people are mm-hmm. has actually served me in some ways in, in, some, in some of my stuff. And so, uh, and I know Daniel, you and I even personally have talked about, yeah. you know, what the, because, and I think anyone who's been a regular listener to this podcast can probably feel that you're not a very confrontational person. You're, Son you're very, bitch. well, <laughs> don't Go put ahead, me do in it, a box. <laughs> this is 2018 sucker. Asshole Daniel's coming out to play. <laughs> Here he comes. <laughs> no, but yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying. And you're probably going to make, as an artist, art that's powerful in a way that isn't necessarily confrontational. Right, that's a good point. But it's maybe more inclusive or mm-hmm. something like that, which is 
it's which isn't of lesser value than than what Terry Gilliam does. No, but I I think that, and I really love this conversation. It's not of a lesser value, but it, what it is, it's requiring something different of the people who are going to be receiving it or experiencing it. And I think all of us, in some ways, we want art that includes us, and we need that. For some of us, we may not want art that challenges us, but right. we need that too. Sure. Going back to Gilliam, he does that. Like he, we might not all want what he's offering because it's so challenging, right? But perhaps we need it, you know? Maybe, yeah, because challenge and inspiration aren't necessarily diametrically opposed, but they aren't necessarily at the same place on the spectrum either. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible to challenge and inspire. Clearly it is. Yeah. But you can also inspire without necessarily confronting someone yeah. in a, in, or challenge someone in a confrontational way. Going back to Spielberg, he definitely inspires. Does he challenge the fundamentals of what we believe I don't know that that's what he's necessarily on the planet for. Right. In Terry Gilliam's own words, Spielberg's a comfort director. Mm -hmm. And honestly, there's nothing wrong with being a comfort director. In fact, you're probably, he's probably the best one in the world. Yeah. And he's done great at it. And some of my favorite films are comfort films. You know, I don't know how else to put it. But if you only have one or if you only have the other, that's a shitty world that I don't want to be part of. For sure. And I think even more so than ever, we need those confrontational films, stories that aren't, right? That tells the truth, that speaks loudly and challenges the way that we're thinking and engaging the world. I feel like we, yeah, we need that. Yeah. So what do you see in Monty Python and the Holy Grail that Terry Gilliam said, I'm not doing that again? So I had a hard time with this one. I think by nature of it being Monty Python uh, is why it's told in like a vignette style. But that was that's one thing I think he he wanted to do differently moving forward is to tell more story driven or character driven. Maybe is better. Even if you think about the plots, his his movies move and they they, they there are plots to them. But I'm not so sure he's he starts there. Right. Uh, he probably starts. It seems like something cinematic vision things that that he's imagining the visual world of something is probably where he starts but there's still a movement and a thread through the stories in the holy grail this kind of this broken up nature of it i think he he does differently but again is that is that something he's just like i don't want to do that anymore or is that just something i'm only doing because it's monty python i think to a degree he he almost because maybe it was just sort of like his his kind of comfort totem or something he he still hung on to a little bit of that in even in jabberwocky mm. there was yeah i can see that a little bit vignettish but on the other hand a much more forgettable movie than right than holy grail but kind of a prettier movie though beautiful than holy grail yeah. it almost felt like a, a monty python and the holy grail part two mm. but just a much far less successful one in a lot of different ways with the exception of i think the visual stylization was definitely a step forward for him. Everything else, though, the jokes weren't quite as good. The performances weren't quite as memorable. The, you know, the vignettes themselves. It felt like he got a screaming deal on a lot of these props and sets because right. he was able to reuse them from Holy Grail. But and he uh, just said, let's do it again. Yeah, exactly. By the way, that thing the king holds in Jabberwocky, yeah. I'll be damned if that's not the uh, the holy hand grenade. I feel though. like it's the same thing. <laughs> the, the holy hand grenade. The Book of, of Armaments. How does it, um, how does it work? I know not, my liege. Consult the Book of Armaments. Armaments, chapter 2, verses 9 to 21. 
And Saint Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs and sloths and carp and anchovies and orangutans and breakfast cereals and fruit bats and large... Give a bit, brother. No, but I, I honestly, I think the biggest thing that he decided that he wouldn't do later is maybe the big, the most obvious, which is he decided that he didn't want to share his vision with anyone else. Oh anymore, yeah, you know, that's true. He wasn't going to co-direct. I, I did. I had heard that there was a desire for him to co-direct Life of Brian. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah, and those were discussions, but ultimately Terry Gilliam said, you know, I don't. I did that. And he was happy to be like a, you know, consulting producer and all that kind of stuff. But he just, I think he knew that he had had the experience he needed to have on Holy Grail and that was fine, but he can't share it anymore. No. He had to do his own thing. And, and that's to the world's benefit, really, because I, I love Monty Python on the Holy Grail, but him on his own. Yeah. And he just keeps progressing, in, at least in terms of vision. Yeah. Some, some really, really wild stuff for, for better or for worse. But in terms of like the overall body of work, um, you just, you can't separate Holy Grail from the Terry Gilliam lineup. But I don't know, I'm kind of curious what you think in terms of where do you feel like Holy Grail fits? It's such an outlier in so many ways. It really is. Where do you feel like it fits in his whole, I don't know, his list? I'd place it in in the middle and maybe even a little bit higher than the middle but certainly around that area because i think that there are terry gilliam films that i don't like sure but there are terry gilliam films that i absolutely love yeah and monty python is one of those again so watchable constantly you just put it in and i won't get tired of it it's one of those films but in terms of what makes a gilliam film a gilliam film i feel like there's it was probably in the middle yeah. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I in addition to it being the freshman film that I've seen the most, I'm sure it's the Terry Gilliam film that I've seen the most. Um, it's just, it's so part of, it's in my blood cells. You know, I just, I know this film so well. I've seen it so many times and, and I do love it. And it almost makes it sound like I've got like this obsessive love with it, which I, that would be overstating. But I do love the film, but I would say the same. I, I can't say that in terms of, personal impact and power and inspiration that I've taken from it that I would say it's his best work or anything like that. And that's why it's hard to talk about like in terms of a comparison because it is such an outlier. I know, it's so different. There's so much about it that doesn't really have a direct comparison to anything else in his work. But but yeah, definitely upper half. And, and, I, say, and I say that partly because, quite frankly, he's done a number of movies that I just... Eh. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I can acknowledge that they're important or that they were good to see or something like that, but I can't call them movies that I love. I, they're just movies that I am glad I saw. You yeah, know? and for me, for some reason, those are his later films for me. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know why. I mean, I haven't thought enough about that to make a comment, but I, I've noticed that trend at least. Yeah. There's just some Terry Gilliam experiences that I think surpass Holy Grail. I can tell you that probably my my favorite Terry Gilliam films are probably his the two films that get associated with him the mo- the most is are Brazil and Twelve Monkeys. Right. I just I just love them. I, those I, are my I mean those are my two absolute favorite. I think a third is Fear and Loathing for Fear me. Fear and Loathing. Yeah, you know what? Fear and Loathing. This is what I've heard. Have you read Fear and Loathing? No. Oh, okay. Well, maybe my theory blows apart then. <laughs> 
because I, I, I was intrigued and appreciated fear and loathing, but I can't say I loved it. Yeah. I've heard though, that if you've read the book, it's a great companion to the book. Okay. I mean, I was familiar with Hunter S. Thompson before. Sure. Yeah. So I knew the Gonzo style and all of that. And I was always intrigued by it. Yeah. So I, it felt like a companion to Hunter S. Thompson. Right. But I didn't actually read the book. Yeah. I didn't get as much out of it as I know a lot of other people did. And maybe I just need to return to it. But yeah, I there's something about 12 Monkeys in particular. Honestly, I don't think Brad Pitt has ever been better than oh that. Oh my goodness. He's so, so good. good. Um, obviously, when I saw that movie, I, I thought I need to see everything else this guy is. That's how I felt. And yeah. I saw this, I saw in the theater, yeah. which I can't even believe. I look, think back to that and I'm like, wow. I don't know. I, I think I saw it because of Bruce Willis. I and mean, that's the only reason why I would have gone to see it. But it was, it was just so clever, especially the fact that it was, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the art film that it was based no. on La Jetty, which is this interesting film that's all told and it's just a progression of stills. Oh, wow. But, you know, obviously 12 Monkeys goes into much more story depth and all that. But I feel like 12 Monkeys was made. There's no more Terry gilliam no. film than that. You know, maybe with the exception of Brazil. I mean, Brazil oh, was yeah. just everything that's in Terry Gilliam's mind spewed out. It's right on, there. On celluloid. The fakery, the themes rising above the grossness of mm. bureaucracy and society. And it's such a thinly veiled uh, critique of not just modern society, but even specifically the studio system that he's forced to work inside. Absolutely. That's okay. I mean, yeah, he bashes you over the head with his metaphors, but that's all right. He does it well. Yeah, he does it really well. I'm glad you brought up Fear and Loathing also, because um, I, I don't think that you can talk about Hunter S. Thompson without bringing up Ralph Steadman to a certain degree, which is so interesting. If you look at the illustrations of Terry Gilliam, his illustration style, I think is the spiritual cousin to Ralph Steadman's illustration style. Because they feel so, yeah, they they do feel similar. And I'm not, and I'm not an illustrator, but I can notice that too. So yeah, yeah, they feel connected in some way. I didn't want to get through the whole episode without mentioning what a phenomenal illustrator he is on top of everything else. Again, you know, I think that's partly why this Tim Burton, Terry Gilliam one-two punch yeah, was so great. And it probably why, as you said already in the begin earlier in the episode, is why he can have such a complete vision. Yeah. You need to. Totally. So, Jeremy, it feels a little obvious to me, given how we've talked about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, about whether or not we think it's a film that is important to see. Right. Because it's a Gilliam film, but also because it's a wonderful film. I yeah. That's where I land. I think that... It's not just for completists only. No, no. Well, I mean, th- that's that's the thing with Monty Python and the Holy Grail. If you haven't seen it, God forbid, you need to see it pretty much immediately because it's not really even just something where it's like you're going to see a great film and it's hilarious and all that. To be a functioning member of society, society it's true. <laughs> you need to go watch the film. It's, it's, it's in the water. Cultural, yeah, it's a it's a cultural must. I you, think you people, if it. they haven't seen it, they're gonna wa- they're gonna watch it and they're gonna be like, oh, yeah, like they're gonna remember like a thousand moments where people were trying to be funny and they never left. Last year, my wife and I went to a showing uh, at the art theater of The Princess Bride, mm-hmm. and she had never seen it. What? What? Yeah, she had never seen it. She left the theater with that exact reaction. She's like, okay, okay. 
there's about a hundred little things that now make sense that people have said to me over the years. Exact same situation. If you've never seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail, just purely for the fact that you're going to be able to be like, oh, that's what, okay, now I get it. Just that alone. But in addition to that, it's just maybe one of the funniest movies around. It I really mean, is. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. And then that, 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 the mix of the aesthetic and the funny, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a very unique thing. I mean, yeah, I guess you could say they, they achieved a certain amount of that with Life of Brian and Meaning of Life. For my money, of all the Monty Python movies, the Holy Grail is heads and shoulders above the others. It is. It is the best, I think. You can't not see this movie. You can't not see it. Well, I think that does it for this episode of The Freshman 15. Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, but Terry Gilliam's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Don't be a dope. Watch Go it. see it. Just, yeah, it, there, there's no reason for you to make it through the rest of this month without having seen it if you haven't seen it already. And if you have, go watch it again. You're going to watch a really funny movie. So if you want to reach us, you can email us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Our email is freshman15film at gmail.com. That's freshman15film at gmail.com. Also, we'd love for you to go on iTunes and to give us a rating. It helps people locate our podcast in the search engine. Um, so please go ahead and do that. For those of you who have, really appreciate it. It's really helped us out. And before we go, I also want to mention um, that Daniel and I both subscribe to a service that we get terrific enjoyment out of. In fact, we've even seen one or two Terry Gilliam films pop up on there. Uh, and that is, of course, the streaming film service, Filmstruck. If you're not familiar with Filmstruck, they curate a terrific collection of essential films. A lot of them are actually from the Criterion Collection. Absolutely worth your hard-earned money. Sign up for Filmstruck. See all the stuff that's, frankly, too good to be on Hulu or Netflix or Amazon Prime or any of the others. It's just a great way to enjoy and experience essential films that you can't find anywhere else. I just renewed my subscription you just did it okay as did i so so yeah so join us and join our discussions because uh quite frankly without paying a crap ton of money i don't know how else you're gonna see these films it's true well once again thanks for listening i'm jeremy bear and i'm daniel long talk to you next time